you've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining me on episode 170, and happy new year, by the way. My guest on this episode is Joshua Greenwald. He's the CEO of a newly formed crypto derivatives exchange, LXDX. But the part that got me keen to speak with Josh was the fact that he was a professional trader for more than 10 years prior. Josh started his career at DRW Trading in Chicago. He then left after six years and went on to co-found Greenlight Trading, which was a proprietary firm specializing in low-latency options market making almost exclusively for Asian markets. Greenlight grew to be a team of approximately 30 people before it was acquired. Over the next hour or so, we spoke a lot about Greenlight, the timeline from beginning development up to beginning to trade, the signals and the opportunities that they went after, and even the technology that they utilized, such as custom-built FPGA chips. Then, towards the end, we discuss what's involved in starting an exchange, the functionality and the features that are missing from most crypto exchanges that are common and almost a given in traditional markets, and how LXDX is using a security token offering for additional funding. But please, let me be very clear, this is not an endorsement of any kind. If you do decide to purchase tokens, that's cool, but that's totally on you. Not my responsibility, okay? Let's get started. I really enjoyed this conversation and the topics we covered were super interesting. I hope you'll enjoy listening. Here is my guest, Joshua Greenwald. So you just got back from Asia, did you? Yeah, I was out there working on uh, fundraising for LXDX for the past week. Okay, so you're trying to get investors over there, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're doing a uh, like security token offering, kind of one of its first. Um, and I'm out there kind of, uh, one, like obviously like raising for it and two, like explaining to people how it all works because it's kind of an unusual, still novel way to to raise funds. Mm. Yeah, I did read an article uh, online about you were doing uh, something like that. So I've actually got in my notes here to ask you about that. So um, we will get to that. Sure. 
Now, you started out your trading career at DRW. Um, just tell me a little bit about how you actually got started, obviously, at DRW, some of the things you were doing there, and then we'll get into what you were doing at Greenlight because I think that's really interesting. Uh, but yeah, take it away. Sure. So to a large extent, DRW made me. I started there 12 years ago, actually at the same time of one of my co-founders here at LXDX, John. Uh, we both were there. I was there working on a group, uh, like coding, helping build models for a group that would eventually become DRW Equities, um, which I'd eventually help run. And, and thanks to awesome mentorship and a fair bit of luck, we were quite successful. My interest, especially as we, we, we kind of like left the post Lehman world and went into like the zero interest rate world, my interest, uh, kind of shifted more to Asian markets, um, and, and HFT. And so when DRW, launched uh, an Asia group, I was uh, like thrilled to hop over and work on that and kind of run research for that and eventually uh, Cospi trading for them. And that that was kind of success there is what led to me and a few guys starting our own firm, which was Greenlight. Yeah. So what motivated you to actually go out on your own? I think that the the things that you can do at a small shop and the things you can do at a big shop are very different. I think that DRW is a very, very powerful place to go after certain strategies. But for the specific businesses we wanted to do, which was like ultra low latency, build our own hardware, do FPGAs, like get into new products fast and keep keep iterating fast. It's there's something that's powerful about being kind of like your own lean, small shop and being able to do whatever you want without getting approval for trading products and stuff like that. And how long were you with DRW before you decided to branch out and do your own thing? Let me think about that. I got to DRW in 2005, so I guess six years as a DRW. Okay. And prior to that, had you had any trading experience? No, none at all. I, To be honest, I had knew nothing about trading. I was studying uh, information security at uh, Carnegie Mellon. And, uh, I happened to wander into like one of the, you know, like campus info sessions that DRW was holding mm-hmm. and they're explaining market making and, uh, trading. And I was, I was more interested in blackjack and poker back then. Um, so I, uh, I went one, I met one of the partners, um, and talked his ear off about, about how to model clusters of cards, uh, when you shuffle a deck and, uh, he, he thought it was, a a applicable skill set for financial markets. And that's that's how I, I ended up meeting the DRW guys. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm sure you did. Uh, so you left DRW after about six years and you started uh, Greenlight Trading, which was your own thing. And did you have another co-founder when you started this? Yeah, so there were three of us that founded uh, Greenlight or GLT, sometimes it's called. Brian, Eric, me and John and John and I are, are two of the co-founders uh, on the new thing, LXDX. Okay. And what was Greenlight? Like, how would you sort of sum it up, I guess? Um, Greenlight was fun <laughs> um, and we were good. You know, we didn't have, like I said, the resources of a huge shop, but we had the specific expertise that you could really lever um, and move fast. And so we had, you know, some of the first, you know, like FPGA solutions in the market and a lot of the markets we traded in. Um, we were a, a large percentage of the market in Cosby options and, and some of the other Korea products. And then we were a big trader of Japanese futures, um, 
CME options, kind of like a, like a, a broad set of things where you could really bring ultra low latency tech to the table. So you were purely options? Not purely options. I think that we were pretty product agnostic, so we would trade anything um, as long as we could model it and we thought that we had an edge, we would trade it. Okay. So what other things were you trading besides options? Um, we traded index futures, um, currency futures, bond futures, um, all, all over the place. And were the futures mostly to complement your options trading? Like, was that part of the strategy where you would trade the options against the futures or something, um, you know, as some sort of complex strategy like that? Well, I mean, we did definitely some liquidity provision in options. So, you know, like we were we were doing market making and options. And when you got filled, you'd hedge. But a lot of our strategies were kind of short term uh, momentum. Like so we'd have like a machine learning model that would say, hey, I think that this asset is going to is going to move a few ticks over the next 30 seconds or minute. Um, so grab some futures um, and, and ride it for a few seconds and then get out. Mm. Um, so Greenlight was a, a, you could describe it as a proprietary trading firm. Proprietary trading shop, correct. We traded all of our own capital. We did not have any outside investors. And, and how did you go with uh, getting the capital to trade? Um, like what sort of arrangements did you have there? Were you able to sort of put up money with a Clara and they were able to offer you a, a lot of leverage or uh, was that not necessary? That's the bulk of it. I mean, we used our own capital and we used our uh, brokers to lever up to have access to the opportunities we wanted to be in. I mean, most of the products we traded were pretty highly levered anyway. So we were able to make uh, like, uh, like extremely outsized returns on a pretty small starting stack. And are you able to share a little bit of insight to what kind of volume you were doing? You know, you said that you were a large or a, a quite a decent chunk of the volume that was being done in some of these uh, products that you were trading. Uh, can you give us some numbers? Um, I can probably give you some ballparks. I think that, you know, in most of the highly liquid things like major index futures and options, we were, you know, three to 5%. I think that where we were very large participants were some of the smaller products on the KRX or SGX where we probably were between 10 and 25% of a lot of those products. So SGX is obviously Singapore. Singapore, Singapore exchange and KRX is the Korea exchange. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you focus predominantly on the Asian markets. Yeah. Greenlight was almost exclusively Asia markets with this side, with the caveat that we also did, uh, uh, market making, uh, in, in S and P index options as well on the CMA. Okay. And you were mostly, uh, sorry, not mostly, you were based in Chicago doing this, right? Right. So I was based in Chicago. Um, eventually, Greenlight uh, had offices in Seoul and Vancouver, but we, the bulk of all of our development, all of our trading was always out of Chicago. Okay. And did that prevent, uh, not prevent, did that, uh, were there any issues which came with that or any challenges? Uh, from not being, you know, closer to where the Asian markets are trading? Yeah, yeah. I mean, other other than like, you know, like the the impact on your personal life of having to work from, you know, like 4 p.m. till 2 a.m. all the time, um, which is significant. And, and leaving the Chicago office at 2 a.m. when it's negative 10 degrees outside is not 
not the greatest way to live life all the time. Um, definitely like in, in Asia, there's, there's a lot of need to be on the ground and understand the situation. Um, just like not all of the information about how to connect to the exchange the best possible way, like when new products are coming out, when regulations might change, when rules might change, all of that you get by, by being out there frequently or by having a physical permanent office there. And so that's why eventually there was a, a permanent presence and why, uh, you know, like for most of the time, Running Greenlight, one of us founding partners was out in Asia once a month. So there's basically always someone from the firm out there. Yeah, makes sense. And you were later acquired, and we will get to that. But um, how many people, like what size did Greenlight grow to? Uh, I think that when I left, Greenlight was uh, about 20 people. And I believe it grew a little bit past that point. Uh, Okay. And out of those 20 people... How many would you say were actual traders? Like how many of those people had trading roles? Like what was kind of the, how were those 20 people split up? What sort of different things were they working on? I presume the sort of trading that you guys were taking part in, you had a lot of developers and probably only a few guys who were actually doing the trading. Um, Can you shine a little insight on that? Sure. So, I mean, when we started, we had um, basically just two of us as traders and we quickly had like six or seven other people that were sort of developers slash IT operational support. I think once the firm was sort of really plugging away, um, we probably operated under a ratio of like two developers to one trader uh, approximately. Okay. And were there other roles besides just traders, developers? Um, maybe you had more specialized developers in certain areas like networking and that type of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I think that, that we viewed, we viewed, so one thing that's a little bit unusual for us is we didn't really view that there being a distinction between research and trading. Um, so everyone that was involved in researching, developing strategies, or even just doing like analysis of the performance of strategies was also generally trading. Um, maybe not like, uh, as much as the, as the larger traders who were like, that was their sole focus, but they were still actively trading on the development side. Um, we sort of had a little bit of hardware development. We had like integration between the hardware development and, uh, the core kind of like C software. And then we had like a team of, uh, kind of like core developers that all had like their different focuses, like order routing, market data, connectivity, um, strategy code. So we, we definitely broke things up. People definitely wore multiple hats depending on just kind of what was needed. How long did it take you to actually get up and going? Like from the time when you decided you were going to start Greenlight, you know, day one to when you actually began trading, what was that timeline like? It was about eight months of before we turned the systems on um, and we were profitable uh, even after costs in the first month after we turned the systems on. Um, that said, like, which was a great success. We were like something like I'm like phenomenally proud of, of, of building that and having it work so quickly. Um, but people remember their successes and not all the things that went wrong. Like Greenlight, we had lots of strategies that 
that were, uh, that like, you know, you work on and, and they were great. But I think part of trading is always, always building, uh, always like building great infrastructure so that you can try lots of different things. You know, like we, we had a lot of strategies that we thought were going to crush it that never got traction, but we always had a big enough book of strategies where, where we could, uh, always have a few things that worked well. When you say that you were profitable within the first month, does that mean that you were able to cover all the costs of development, et cetera, from those first eight months and getting up and going? No, I mean that like basically the the recurring costs were like easily covered per month at that point. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, so you kind of mentioned it there, but what were some of the the difficulties or challenges that you had at Greenlight, either in the early days or, you know, as things were, um, churning along. Um, I think that one of the things that, uh, has been a persistent challenge in my career is that often, um, I am interested in strategies that take advantage of a specific market mechanic, like the way that an auction works or the way that an exchange is, lock period works or a break works. Um, and uh, the, the advantage of like nuanced strategies like that is that there's less competition, but, uh, one, they're very subject to winning at that game because it's kind of a, like a, a limited size opportunity. And two, the rules of those sorts of things change frequently, like an exchange changes, how it's auctions work, changes, how it's the ways in which it accepts messages during different periods of time. Um, so one of the, one of the things that we would run into pretty frequently is just that the rules of the game would change as you're, uh, optimizing for a specific, specific thing. Are you able to speak about one of those strategies in a little more detail? Um, sure. So in Korea, um, I could talk about it in some detail, probably not, not excruciating detail, but in, in Korea, like for a long time, um, the options market would just open without any indicative market data. So basically the future would start trading and then all of a sudden all of the options would start trading and you wouldn't be able to see the prices in any of the options, um, which creates kind of like an uh, opportunity, right? Because there's nothing that, that means that all of that stuff is in line with one another. So there's just lots of potential instantaneous arbitrages that are available for the in the first second of trading. Um, so we had a strategy that we uh, jokingly named first strike after the Jackie Chan movie, um, which go after, go after opportunities in the first second of the day. Um, and we spent a while developing it. It's not like, it sounds like it'd be very easy cause it's all arbitrages, but, um, given the limited amount of hedging instruments and like the difficulty in knowing which things are in line and which things are out of line, there's a fair bit of like, as with any trading system, making sure you have all of the edge cases covered. Um, we spent a while developing that strategy and basically right, uh, right as we were launching it, they changed the rules so that the auctions were no longer blind. So when you say that the auctions were blind and you, you couldn't see the prices, is that like you couldn't see kind of the indicative price of where it's likely to open, like where it's likely to have the first print? Yes, exactly. Sorry, you should you should uh, you should always call me on when I use uh, nonsensical high frequency jargon. Um, the the when I say the auction is blind, it's exactly that. There's no, no no published indicative price in the market data. 
Okay, so the only thing you can base your trading off is where the futures are trading. But those are also not open yet. There's no, there was back then no indicative price in the futures. So like imagine at 9 a.m. suddenly the futures market and all of the options markets are trading and there's been orders in them because people have been submitting orders pre-open. Okay, so they all come online at the same time. Exact same time. And that mechanic, that sort of mechanic is something that you will see repeated in many markets in many areas, you know, like there's been similar opportunities in Chinese markets. Um, in fact, that one is still active. That one is still active. As far as I know, people still run basically this sort of strategy in, in Chinese markets. Yeah, right. And, and something like that, it, there's no chance of a human being able to trade that, is there? Well, when it's blind, generally no, unless you have some great intuition from some other source. Like if you have... If you know that the guys that are going after this opportunity don't know about um, some large event happening in the underlying cash instruments, or you have flow from some OTC thing, which tells you that you can take advantage of, of the opportunity. Um, it's not, it's not impossible that you would participate manually in an opportunity like that. Okay. Yeah. Right. Now I asked you just before, what were some of the challenges you had with uh, green light can I ask you more specifically, what were some of the challenges you had or some of the lessons you even learned uh, while building up a team? Because it's very impressive that you were able to start, I think it was just the four of you in the beginning and you grew that to 20 people. Um, what were some of the challenges you actually had in building out a team? So I think that there's no, there's no real easy way to attract great developers to a small trading firm, you know, because, because the established big guys, um, have deep pockets and provide great work cultures for developers that like you have to, for someone to agree to, to work with you instead of going to one of the big shops, they have to personally trust you as a trader that you're going to be able to be successful and make the, the risk that they're taking worthwhile. Um, so I think that, you know, like we knew that to be successful in attracting talent, we had to find people that, that were interested in the optionality of getting in on something at the ground floor. Um, in that, in that regard, it's similar to, you know, like recruiting for a startup, like you have to convince people of your vision it can't be like a purely economic argument that you make to people. There's like, it's a little bit cheesy to say it's an emotional argument, but there's like a, there's like a inspirational need to be like, yeah, we're the small guys, but we're going to kick ass and we're going to win at this. Like if you don't have that um, and you're, you're just shopping on price, it's, it's super hard to put together a, a, a great team. And did you ever have to offer equity to get some of these developers over the line? So we typically offered not direct equity in the firm. I don't think we ever offered anyone direct equity in the firm. I think that we typically played by the the standard kind of trading firm rules of giving people uh, bonuses from the, the trading revenue. Right. Um, I think that what the other thing that we did a good job of is pulling talent uh, from outside finance in um, a lot of, a lot of the, the best developer talent we had came from telecom, um, X NSA, um, X like, uh, 
high-end audio engineering, like lots of people that like worked in disciplines that we knew had skill sets that were very similar to uh, building like high-performance trading systems uh, because those are all places where people write extreme, like where performant code is very, very important. So we looked at industries where people write highly performant code and really tried to leverage our headhunters and networks in those in those disciplines to bring in talent at price points that we could afford. Okay. That seems like a clever way to play it. Yeah. I think that like, if you, if you like dig deep on where a lot of the fanciest, like low level C plus plus handwritten assembly code is written, it's a lot of times in, in places you wouldn't think to look. Mm-hmm. Um, the example that springs to mind is like digital cameras um, like anyone that ever works on like sensors for digital cameras, like the, the code that they write for that stuff is super badass. Um, it's all like <laughs> handwritten assembly. So like guys that work on those systems can write you some fast tick to trade systems too. Like they you just have to frame the problem correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what advice would you have for anyone who's trying to put together a team of their own or just starting out? I think that no matter what you have to budget, like nine months to a year of development time if you're building everything from scratch. Um, I think that like building from scratch is still a pretty good way to go um, because it means that you understand the systems. I think that you definitely need to make sure that all of the talent that you start the thing with have enough personal runway where they can commit to the project for 18 months to two years because it's going to take time. Um, and like I said before, as a trader, you need to have a you need to have a solid book of strategies if you're going to start a trading firm. You can't just have like one or two things that you're going after. Um, difference I think between startups and a trading firm is a startup you're incentivized to uh, lever up, right? Because you borrow from you have VCs, you have investors, you have all these people, and you want to like lever up and focus on the one specific thing and do that one specific thing great and get it out to market and, and build it up. But trading, I think, is a little bit more like portfolio management, even when you're a startup, like you have to uh, have enough things so that you can so you can keep the lights on while while you build up, while you build them out. So horizontally before vertically. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. They started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for. Then they made it easier to evaluate each investment opportunity with better data in the places you need it most. Finally, they made investing in bonds as straightforward as stocks or any other asset. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate treasury and municipal bonds go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started this podcast is sponsored by public full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the u.s markets is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade 
Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. So the strategies that you began trading at Greenlight, you know, after the eight months when you were up and going, ready to push the go button, were these strategies which you developed over that eight months? Like, did you know at the beginning of those eight months that these are the sorts of strategies you would be trading or are these ones which you developed and, uh, sorry, researched and then developed during that period? The core ideas of what we wanted to do were known. So we knew that there were like four or five types of opportunities we wanted to go after. You know, like obviously like as, as options market makers, like we knew we wanted to be options market makers. We knew we wanted to quote actively all of the strikes in Korea. Um, and as, and as we had like spent a lot of time doing, uh, like Delta momentum type stuff, we knew that we wanted to do Delta momentum strategies. I think that we knew the high level brushstrokes of what we wanted to do. And most of what I spent my, you know, eight months pre-launch doing was all of the research, calibration, tuning, and kind of like actually figuring out the exact specifics of how the strategies would work. There is, there's maybe like one or two new things that, that like we decided we wanted to do during that time, but we sort of started the firm with a decent book of uh, objective strategies. Okay. And then you obviously added to that over time. Yeah. As opportunities become, you know, often new opportunities are, are arising because the market dynamics change because the market rules change because um, the market climate changes, but also, you know, like you learn that you can lever ideas from the success or failure of one strategy to do something different. Right. Uh, you said just a moment ago, uh, you talked about Delta. Uh, Delta momentum. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are you referring to when you talk about that? So I think that like very commonly in, in electronic options trading, you have guys that are trying to provide liquidity by showing quotes in, in many strikes of options. And they're like using, uh, to determine their prices primarily like their, their notion of skew or volatility and their reference price of the underlying. Um, and as the underlying moves, they move all of their quotes around and exchanges like provide lots of different messages and optimizations to make them successful at that. On the other side of the table are guys that are trying to take advantage of market makers um, being too slow to move their quotes. Um, and so these guys are watching for the futures to move and then trying to get options. Um, and typically like that sort of strategy, like people are going after higher delta options. They're trying to like get get directional exposure by trading options based on the underlying move. Um, it's a game of kind of cat and mouse there. <laughs> And so you were more of the lighter. Um, yeah, I think that you know, I, <laughs> I, I've I've probably most of my career I've run both liquidity making and liquidity taking strategies. Um, however, I 
I personally like have a have a tendency towards preferring liquidity taking strategies. Uh, that's not because I'm a, a parasite that this takes for market makers, but <laughs> if you build liquidity taking strategies, they inform your liquidity providing strategies. So like if 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 my goal is to like pick off your quotes when the market moves, um, well, then it also means that like when I quote, I, I have the signal that prepares me to defend against that. Um, so I often view, uh, like starting out most, like, I, like most times when I try and start out a trading desk, I, I, I start with liquidity taking and then use that to kind of like build to protect and build the liquidity making around it. And is this why, and you know, you've mentioned it a couple times that you were very, you were a very low latency shop. Um, is this why, reducing your latency as much as possible was so important for the way you were trading? For sure. I mean, I think that for liquidity taking strategies, latency is probably is where you see like the most impact of being uh, of low latency because you're going to build these models, you know, like, and they could be fancy, you know, you could have whatever 50 parameter fancy machine learning model you want, but a lot of the signals are obvious. Um, so it's like, even like, you and Jump and Optiver and IMC and every usual suspect, you all have different models with different parameters. But like when someone sweeps the book in futures, like you're all responding to that. So like there's so many common signals across uh, across sets of partic- participants in the market that you're all racing to send orders at the exact same time. And then it's just who's fastest. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, that was something I was going to ask you about actually is like, what kind of things were you using to drive your trading decisions? Obviously it's all order book stuff, right? Mostly order book stuff, but often order book stuff in other products. So, you know, like if you're doing a purely future strategy, uh, obviously like you're using like microstructure, um, parameters in that product. So you're saying like, Hey, like, um, I can give an example in, in products I've never traded that way. I'm definitely not leaking information. <laughs> um, like if you're trading that gas versus crude oil, um, which I've never traded, so I don't know anything about it. Um, and you might, you might use not just like the price movement of natural gas to go after crude oil, because that's probably pretty obvious, but you might even use just like book changes in that gas to go after crude oil. Like if you see a whole bunch of cancels in the book of natural gas, that might make you think that there's, uh, about to be a large flow in natural gas. And therefore you think there's going to be a large flow in the correlated product. So, um, typically like I'm, I'm a big believer in, uh, in, in, in parameters, which are, uh, rel- like book pressure, which I think lots of people will always have book pressure in your, in your local product, but also book pressure and microstructure signals in highly correlated products can be very, very powerful. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and how far out were you trying to predict? I think you said earlier, sometimes it was just a couple seconds. Could be a couple seconds. Um, I think that often, often it's a, this is like a little bit of like the, the, you turn, you sort of tune these, these dials as you actually run the system in production. Um, because it, it sort of depends on the, on the quality of executions that you're getting. So you might train a model to go after 
to be like the model might, might be most accurate at 10 seconds. It's, it's going to be less accurate generally the further out you're trying to predict. Um, but because hedging all the time and exiting trades all the time is expensive fees wise, you might have a model that's, that's designed to predict prices or the, the dis- distribution of prices at the 10 second window, but you might only actually hedge every few minutes. Sometimes that idiosync, uh, sometimes like that, that asymmetry is a problem and you have to sort of adjust the, the forecast horizon to be closer to the hedging horizon. That's just kind of something that you play with based on the feedback you're getting from the market. Okay. And these strategies, which we're talking about here, I presume that you were using like some of the trading decisions were, like you said, driven by audible activity uh, mm-hmm. and also uh, correlated products or related products. The research for these strategies and actually creating them, how much did you rely on machine learning for this? I would say quite heavily. Um, I think that often like, I think that the type of trading that I do is I have a, I have a preference for sort of simulation based trading. So like if you can, if you can build a simulator to, uh, at least approximate how the actual exchange you think works with some assumptions. Um, and then you can sort of codify, uh, the trades that you would do and play them through the simulator. You can then sort of say, Hey, like if I had, if I had done these trades on this day's worth of market data, like how much money would I have made? Um, and so working backwards from that, like you're going to have some set of signals, which tell you when to enter and exit trades. And your simulator is going to tell you like what the performance of that set of signals is on that day's worth of data. Um, to be able to, uh, first tell if like the idea of a trade is okay. You can get by with just some kind of like if statements and conditional logic and stuff like that. But, um, at some point it actually becomes easier and faster to just grab the things that you think are going to be predictive parameters and put them in a, model and then shake it back and forth and see what comes out. Um, <laughs> shake it back and forth. I like it. <laughs> <yep>. <laughs> when you spoke about a simulator there, can you just describe that a little more? When you, How were you – was this a simulator using historical – if it's historical data, I guess it's not really a simulator. So you were creating what synthetic like – no, it would be historical data. Okay. So like you basically record an entire day's worth of data, right? And so you have like every single tick that happens uh, on the exchange. And then you can like play through that, stepping through message by message and like then take that data and put it in whatever model you have that's going to generate trading signals. Um, and then it'll say, hey, I would have generated a signal on this message at this time. And then you say, okay, like pretend I I sent an order to this to the exchange to buy 10 and you add like a little bit of delay that accounts for how long it would take to get to the exchange and like what are the odds that that order would have crossed if the book turned away from you. So you build in all of the different execution assumptions into your simulator to try and accurately um, run your strategy as if you ran it on that day. Okay, okay. I mean, that's a, that's pretty sophisticated sort of stuff, right? Like that's most people at home can't really 
it's going to be difficult for them to try and pull that off. <laughs> it, de- it depends on the it depends on your on your time horizon of trading. I mean, there are lots of good tools for this sort of stuff if you're if you're targeting a if you're targeting like not just ultra low latency data. You know, like there's um, Zipline and some of those like Python testing frameworks where you can sort of run strategies against them and see how they would have performed. And I think that there's I'm a little bit less up to date on what what the current state of all those are, but I think that there's probably lots of um, lots of tooling in this space now. Uh, you wrote an article uh, a little while back, um, or a series of articles actually on Medium, and they were about uh, position sizing. And I noticed you had an interesting line in one of those, and the line said something along the lines of, you know, if your algo trades a thousand times a day, or if your trading strategy has a thousand trades per day. And I just thought that was really interesting because I kind of like this idea, and I guess it kind of goes back to the the premise of HFT. It's just taking lots of little small bets, yeah, and instead of being dependent on a couple big bets and hoping that they work out, you just take lots of sort of spread your bets wide. If you're not a if you're not a liquidity provider, if you're taking liquidity, how do you find a thousand signals per day? So the challenge the challenge is definitely real if you're if your set of products you're trading is very small. So you're not going to find a thousand signals per day to trade a single thing. But if you diversify the set of products you trade um, you know, in, instead of trading one stock, if you trade 500, it's a lot easier for you to find 20 signals per thing as opposed to, to a thousand signals in, in, in one. Um, I think that, that signals can be very small if the, if the, if the gain you're going for is, is, you know, minuscule, like, a uh, an example is like, um, I think that that this is pretty common knowledge now uh, in in the press. People call it uh, the zero plus strategy. Have you heard this term? I have heard it, but refresh my memory. Zero plus is basically like the idea that like you are just trying to collect bid ask, and you do so by every time the market turns, you try to join the bid on the newly forming bid or join the offer on a newly forming offer, um, with the hope that like. If you buy the bid, there are people in queue behind you to sell back to if you change your mind. Um, and the strategy is really just designed to always have good queue position and uh, try and make a tick every single time. Um, and, I, and this is this strategy was called zero plus. I forget what where which trading firm it leaked from that called it zero plus. But basically, every trading firm I know has run a version of this strategy. Um, and if your definition of signal is basically like joining newly forming price levels, then it's very easy to have thousands of signals per day in a lot of products. I mean, it depends on the product. If something, if it's Fed fund futures, maybe not. But if it's crude oil, then yeah, like the, the market moves usually multiple thousand price changes per day. You know, the first thing that comes to mind, and this is, I guess, just my retail mind, is the uh, the the, uh, the costs, the trading costs associated with something like that. Yeah, yeah. What sort of advantage did you guys have and, you know, anyone who's in that professional space have when it comes to, you know, transaction costs? That's tough. To be honest, I don't know that I I, ex- I have great clarity on what the different 
relative cost advantages are for for large for proprietary player, players versus retail players. Um, I'll say that you know, like we were very small when we started out at Greenlight, and we were still generally able to negotiate um, very good fees with everyone. Um, but but fees are for a lot of these strategies uh, like an, ex- an extremely uh, important part of the equation. Um, you know, I've I've run strategies where uh, like almost all of the money made by the strategy was based on like the differential in fees that we paid versus someone else. So definitely there are certain things where it matters a lot. Um, counter counterpoint when I was trading in China, um, I traded uh, a lot of CSI 500 futures, um, and they had enormous fees. Uh, I think that like, I think that the round trip fees were either six or eight ticks. Um, so there are, it, it might just change the set of opportunities that you go after if you don't have the best fee structure. It's not like, it's not like there's nothing you can do, but it does mean that there's probably certain sets of strategies that you can't do. Something like zero plus or something like that. We're going to, we're going to churn like a huge volume and you need to have the lowest possible fees. Just while I think of it, you said earlier that you're using FPGA chips. Now I find that stuff really fascinating. Um, and I know very little, little about it. How are you using FPGA chips? Like what sort of things were these doing to assist your trading? So I think that that depended a little bit on the era, but there's two, there's two, oh, there's probably more than two, a few different main things that FPGAs can provide for you. One on the market data side, you can use FPGAs to really accelerate the market data that's coming into your trading systems. Um, you can do things like if you're listening to multiple feeds, you could do arbitration across the feeds so that only the fastest message makes it into your trading system and you're not slowed down by sort of like the redundant copies. Um, you can do fancier stuff where like you uh, potentially only process parts of messages and stuff like that and then can react to just part of a message. Um, and then I think that on the next the next level stuff you do with FPGAs is often like just how do I how do I respond with an order as quickly as possible to a signal? And so if you can program your hardware device to be ready to respond with a pre-ready-to-go order, as soon as you get the signal, you can just kind of like release your predetermined response. Um, this this idea is, is old, actually, like the idea of basically like pre-deciding what you're going to do and then just waiting to get the signal to send the order that you already sort of pre-built. It dates back to, I think, 2009, Susquehanna um, came up with this for options trading. Um, but that idea is sort of spilled into uh, low latency systems in, in, in C++ and Java and then eventually became kind of like what you're really trying to do with an FPGA is just, just send this thing that you've already decided on as soon as you get the signal. So it's kind of like embedding your algo in a chip. Yeah. So, I mean, like an example would be like, you know, say there's like a, a 50 Delta option offered for $2. And as soon as the future upticks, you're going to try and buy that option for $2. Like you can pre build the order to the exchange that has like all of the fields filled out and you can put that on your FPGA and then you can tell your FPGA, Hey, as soon as you see the futures uptick, send that order. And so instead of like even going into your trading system, which would take, 
you know, some number of microseconds to process. Even if you like, you spend two years and lots of developer hours optimizing the thing to be as super fast, like the FPGA, because it's just the dumbest thing possible. It's really fast. It's like deterministically fast, right? So like all that FPGA is looking for is like one field on one message, and then it's going to send this order that was already pre-built. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. It takes a long time to build. <laughs> yeah, like how long? I think that from the moment we started working on hardware to when we got to market was probably nine months on the first set of strategies. And like, I think that the general general development time is probably times two. If you want to like, if you want to do a strategy in, in software versus do that strategy in, in, in hardware, you're probably doubling the time to market. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So that's a pretty big advantage. It's a big, it's a big speed advantage. And if you have the, if you have the budget and resources to play in the game, it can be a big advantage, but it's usually for very specific things. Um, and there, there are challenges like, uh, the maintenance of, of these systems is very difficult because you can't necessarily make incremental changes to the code without redeploying the hardware. So if you're, if you want to make some change to the software in something that's running in Frankfurt or Korea, like you potentially have to, uh, do a, a, like a, like flash of the device, like the same way you'd like flash some like uh, hardware device or worst case you need to like actually manually swap out the, the hardware. Mm. Yeah, man, that's really cool. That's really cool. I've never actually spoken to someone who's been, who's done this sort of thing. I've spoken to, uh, one person in the past who kind of spoke about it because he was aware of it, but no one who was actually has run these sorts of things. So, um, yeah, I, mean, I think cool. that only in the last, probably only in the last like three, three years have people been willing to talk about this stuff. I think that th these used to be very, very closely guarded secrets by the trading firms. Um, I think that the democratization of information has been pretty rapid in the last few years about HFT to some degree because HFT has been kind of in the spotlight for, uh, in a lot of bad ways. Um, but I think that also the, the nature of, of the game is, is changing a little bit to, um, to maybe discourage some of these strategies anyway. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I know we've got to talk about LXDX and we'll get to that in just a moment, but before we do, um, you also worked at one other place, which was quite interesting between green light and, uh, what you're doing now, uh, SpaceX. What can you tell me about that? What were you doing there? Yeah. So I, it's kind of a weird story. I was a very active trader in China, uh, leading up to the crash. Um, and I found myself leaving Shanghai, like after really probably the most exciting trading experience of my career. Um, and I spent the next few months, uh, coding a new system from, from scratch, uh, in preparation for China reopening its markets. Um, However, two things, well, three things happened. I, I met my to-be wife. Uh, China didn't reopen their markets. Uh, and I was introduced to a brilliant ex-SpaceX engineer who felt I could bring my specific set of skills acquired over a long career uh, to bear at SpaceX uh, and have meaningful impact. And I've always been a space nerd, Expanse fan, truly believe we deserve the stars. And it's one of my life missions to help us get them. And so that's, that's what got me there. Um, and I loved it there. I can't, I can't talk like in too much detail about the stuff I did there because of, uh, rules. 
Um, but generally like automation and propulsion uh, stuff. And it's like basically like taking the same sort of machine learning models you'd use to predict the movement of some asset and using them to understand components of the vehicle. Okay. And uh, this is going to be a really silly question, but did you have anything to do with Elon Musk? <laughs> <laughs> um, to be honest, not, not terribly. I, you know, I saw Elon in passing a few times. Um, the, I'm, most of, most of the communication that I ever got from Elon was through Twitter, just reading his public Twitter. That's, that's how you learn things about what Elon is thinking. <laughs> okay. Cool, man. Um, so let's talk about LXDX. How come you've gone from trading and also SpaceX to now starting an exchange? I think that first of all, what got us on the path to LXDX was, uh, John, Steven and I were all at Greenlight together. Um, we loved working together and we liked the idea of doing something else together. And we thought about doing a, another trading firm, but focused on crypto. I had been watching crypto from the sidelines for a while. Um, and kind of with the growth of Ethereum, it became like no longer just a technology, but like a new asset class. Um, and it was clear that there was going to be opportunities by, by being active traders in the space. So we started to connect market data or connect to exchanges, record market data, get set up. Um, and we realized that none of the exchanges were built to the standards of the exchanges on which we spent our careers in traditional markets. And so LXDX is an exchange born out of our vision of what the current ecosystem was and, and still is lacking and what needs to be there for crypto markets to scale. Okay, and I understand that you're an exchange, uh, but have you been deterred by the price drop over the past kind of 12 months or so? So we started working on this when Bitcoin was trading 2,000 or 2,500. So, um, you know, the market is still above when we first thought that this was a good idea and the market needed this. Um, I think that exchanges all have a delta to the performance of the assets. That's undeniable. Like as, as there, as the market rallies, like, um, one, like your fees are generally, uh, you know, like basis point structured fees. So like you're, you're collecting like larger fees when the market is at higher prices, but it's easier to, uh, it's better for the long-term health of an exchange that the market does well. Like, Volumes might be pretty high for a little while during a recession or a crash, um, but it it sort of then is flat and dead afterwards. So uh, the bear market is not worrisome uh, as long as we see volumes um, stay healthy. And to a large degree, they have. What you're saying is that you you had the idea to start a crypto trading firm similar to Greenlight, but with a focus on crypto. Uh, but in order to do that, you couldn't find the things that were necessary um, or the things which you had uh, access to through traditional markets. Uh, so you saw an opportunity there to uh, launch an exchange, which had the functionality that, uh, you know, sophisticated traders and investors um, kind of depend on, or maybe even take for granted in traditional markets. What are some of those things which you found were currently lacking on a lot of the crypto exchanges, which 
you know, most traders or sophisticated traders and uh, those had access to in traditional markets? Like what's missing? So I think that there's a few kind of broad areas here. Like one is is technology. Like the crypto exchanges are are basically websites. They're not really exchanges. Like you just send your orders to a website and then, you know, a few seconds later, maybe they get accepted and then you get some market data. Um, whereas, you know, like your traditional derivatives or, or cash exchange has their own data center. You could co-locate next to it. You can get market data at low latency. You have reliable connectivity to it. Like you're not routing orders via the internet to the exchange. And if, you know, like you can't, you can't DDoS the CME, like the market is always up and always available for trade. And so for, so for, for me, like, I think it's really important that an exchange is always there. Um, and I think that none of the exchanges could really deliver on that promise. Like they, they go down all the time. They are unavailable to receive orders all the time. And so that's, that's a big problem. Um, I think that the products are pretty lacking, you know, like if you trade on most exchanges in traditional markets, you've got futures and options and fixed income products and lots of different ways to express opinions. Um, whereas in crypto, you really just trade cash. And so, you know, LXDX is about bringing both the, the technology, you know, we do everything out of our own data center, but also products from traditional markets. We do warrants so you can trade both from the long and short side. Um, and then maybe like even the third thing I would say is kind of like ethos, like exchanges are run um, in a professional and transparent way uh, in alignment with local regulations. Um, generally, like if you're trading on an exchange in traditional market, you're not worried about the exchange secretly trading against you, which like we've seen massive amounts of in crypto. Or we don't, you don't worry about like the exchange front running your orders. Um, and so that's, that's kind of like a lot of the, oh, and I guess maybe the last thing is like wash trading, right? Like wash trading is like, you know, like fraud and a crime in traditional markets, but is like rampant in crypto. And so it's the the ethos of like bringing what what we get in a traditional market to crypto is also like one of the things that LXDX is, is trying to do. Yeah. And just for anyone who's not sure, wash trading is when you trade against yourself, right? Yeah. Wash trading is when you trade against yourself and, and it, in crypto, it's typically facilitated by the exchange. So the exchange has fake accounts that they use to uh, trade with each other to make it seem like the exchange is more active. They're generally not doing it to, to manipulate prices, which is why people wash trade usually in, in, in traditional markets. Like in a traditional market, if you have some illiquid small cap stock that doesn't really trade, um, you know, it's, it's fraud if the thing is worth five cents and you and your buddy decide to trade it for $10 while no one is looking, but on the market. Um, but in, in crypto, it's really about just inflating volumes, not, not a ton of price manipulation. Although there's a little bit of that. That's crazy. So you're saying that most of the wash trading in crypto on crypto exchanges is done by the actual exchanges themselves. Done by the actual exchanges themselves. The only guys that will tell you a different story are the decentralized exchanges. Um, because they have actually no incentive really to, to manipulate their volumes, small incentive, but not, not much. But what they have the problem with is that, uh, like team members of like really small coins that people have never heard of, um, have an incentive to like drive up the price of their coin so that like their market cap goes up massively. And so they'll go to a decentralized exchange and the thing might be worth, you know, like, five ten thousandth of a cent and they'll they'll like bid up the price and then trade up each other for a penny over and over and over again they'll even pay the fees 
but it's worth it to them to manipulate the price that that much. <laughs> it's it's like shocking if you come from traditional markets to see like all this stuff that like you're like, but they would take you away in handcuffs for that in real markets. <laughs> and this is something I was a bit curious about actually is, and it, it's something I've, I've wondered, like when you actually start a new exchange, how do you attract volume? Like how do you attract market makers and how do you actually get because one of the things which incentivizes people I would have thought to trade on an exchange is like uh, the liquidity that's available in most cases that's uh, sort of an uh, an advantage or something you prefer is liquidity Uh, when you start a new exchange obviously you've got no volume how do you bring volume onto your exchange so I think that that's, you know, like that's the thing that keeps me up at night is to make is, is thinking about liquidity. You know, like, how do we because the, the true product of an exchange is liquidity. You know, like we can we can have great technology and we can do all these other things. But if I don't deliver to you liquid markets, then like I have broken my promise to you as a customer and you should go somewhere else. So to, to provide that, though, most of the liquidity at the end of the day is coming from market makers, um, you know, like the. The idea that like one retail or buy side uh, investor happens to show up at the same time as someone who wants to sell is 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 pretty low, right? Like, there's almost always a you're going to trade with a market maker, and then they're going to trade with a market maker, and then there's going to be some hedging that happens. Um, so it's really about attracting market makers to the platform, and uh, thankfully that's something that we know very well as we've spent our whole careers as market makers and in, in in markets all over the place. And so some of that is just kind of like the network effect of knowing a lot of who to harass and bug and, and call in favors to come do this. Um, and the other is that I think that we actually, um, our promise really is to develop uh, a platform for market makers to be optimally successful. You know, like we built all this technology so that they can more easily move their quotes around, send lots of messages, accomplish the things they want to accomplish. And so I think that if you're a market maker and you see a platform like ours, um, as long as you believe that we're going to try and bring flow to the platform, it's not crazy to show up early and say, Hey, like they might not have any volume for a little while, but I want to, uh, I want to be there for when they do. And I value, uh, the potential here. And so it's, it's kind of just about like aligning kind of the, in the same way that you have to attract talent to a startup to get them to believe in the vision, you have to attract market makers who believe in the vision that this is going to be a successful platform. Yeah, I guess it's one of those things which ultimately it just takes time. Correct. And, you know, I think that if you, when I log into a new crypto exchange, which there's a lot of, right? And if they have, the thing I care about is not so much like what their daily volume is. Like I look at that number, but what I really care about is like, what does top of book liquidity look like? Um, because if top of book liquidity looks pretty good, then I think to myself, like this is a place where I could sometimes trade. Um, but if top of book liquidity is horrible, even if they have okay volume, I still know that like you probably can't really do the things you're going to want to do on that platform. And so priority one to me is really making sure that the, the markets are tight and liquid. Um, volumes i think kind of follow thereafter like if you can deliver on tight liquid markets people will come use the platform Mm. yeah and you said it right there that there seems to be quite a few crypto exchanges popping up uh what do you make of that 
Like, how do you feel about that? I think that there's obviously way too many exchanges. Um, I think that the that people have seen the success of Binance and BitMEX and some of the other large exchanges, and they think that that's easy to duplicate. Um, and I think that regulation on exchanges has been very dovish. So you know, if you want to start a new equity options exchange in the U.S., that's hard. Um, you know, it takes lots of licenses and you got to get everyone their Series 57s, even that just writes code for the thing. Um, whereas in crypto, it's much easier to just start an exchange um, and try and attract customers. So I think barrier to entry is low. Um, and I think that the potential upside is high. So it's not surprising to me that lots of people are trying to be in the exchange space. Mm. And how are you, where are you guys placed with regulation? Is that something like, are you going to be a regulated exchange or how does that work? So we're going to be a regulated exchange in Malta. Um, we chose Malta because they were the first to act in terms of providing a set of guidelines for how to be regulated. Um, we're like Malta a lot. Uh, we think that, you know, it's, it, there's lots of other exchanges. A lot of the biggest exchanges, Kraken, Huobi, OKX, um, Binance are all sort of moving their operations to Malta. People are calling it blockchain Island. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I think it's, they've created like a, a sandbox to sort of, um, to be kind of like creative and try things out with how, how the rules should work for these, uh, for these assets. You know, it seems like a lot of what you're building there is so that uh, sophisticated traders uh, have a reliable exchange and have access to the functionality and the things that they uh, depend on. When you actually launch, what type of customers or participants, I guess is probably a better word, do you think you're going to attract? Obviously, a lot of the professional, but do you think you also cater to many retail traders as well? So I think that we think about it uh, like the following way: that we design the technology um, uh, so that so that sell side guys would be able to provide liquidity successfully, and as a promise to that, we are going to uh, make sure that the products and marketing uh, bring retail flow to the platform. And then that, that joint liquidity is what's going to facilitate institutional flow. Um, and so accordingly, like the goal is that LXDX is a great platform for retail to trade on. Um, retail might not need uh, ultra low latency speed. It might not need all of the bells and whistles, but it will benefit from their existence because there will be better pricing and better liquidity on the platform. Um, I think that the, the products that we offer, like we we're going to have, um, like I said, our focus is, is derivatives and initially it's warrants. So you can trade a call and put on Bitcoin. You can trade a call and put on ether and you can trade a call and put on, on ripple. And these let you have, uh, like you can both participate sort of from the long or short side accordingly. Uh, and they also provide a decent amount of leverage. So if you have a specific view that, that ether is going to move in the next five, 10, 15 minutes, you know, like, it's expensive to pay $150 per ether when you could pay, you know, a very small fraction of that to trade the option. Um, and, you know, like as opposed to seeing a 1% move in the underlying, you might see a, a 25 or 50% move in the, in the warrant. So I think that like 
the 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 selling point to to retail is is leverage leveraged exposure ability to, to participate from both the long and short side um the fact that we're the only place in the world to trade these products um and eventually uh as we move sort of into phase two um we're going to have smart routing on the exchange so um you know like the idea is that you'll you'll come to us for superior liquidity and for products you can't trade anywhere else and Smart routing will enable you to trade uh, on other exchanges through our systems, um, so we can execute you execute for you on other platforms. And so then it's kind of like um, you can trade exclusive stuff at LXDX, and anything that we decide to not trade, we can still facilitate for you. Um, that's that's kind of the vision. We want to be a place where uh, all of the various parties get something out of trading on this platform because. I personally don't really believe in institutional only platforms. Cool. And what about launch date? Like you're not trading yet. Um, do you have a launch date in mind? Um, I've been I've been prohibited uh, from from saying the exact launch date, but it is the middle of December. Um, we are doing private testing now for market makers. Um, so we have like a, a cert environment where you can test out the APIs. Um, both the web APIs and the, the fixed colo APIs. Okay. So either way, it's not far away. Not far away. Yeah, cool. And like you said, right at the very beginning, uh, you're doing some sort of security token. Uh, I know nothing about those. How, do, how does that work? Sure. So security tokens are kind of, they're securities first and tokens second. Um, you know, there's been lots of ICOs, uh, token offerings, where basically a company sells you tokens and it's kind of like selling you airline miles before you build the planes. Um, like you have a use, there's a use of the product without like the product existing. Security tokens are pretty grounded in, in real uh, like pre-existing regulatory frameworks. So each token... Um, each LXDX token maps back to a share in LXDX. And so if you have a token, you have a share and there's like an actual, you know, offering document, which, which says this share maps to this token. Um, the other thing that we're doing with the tokens is basically the token holders are entitled to a, a revenue share of the exchange. Um, and so basically it's a way for us to create uh an investment product for investors that believe in our vision to to own a share of LXDX, a meaningful share of LXDX, um, and know that there's like a, a fully compliant backing for for this investment. That we can't change the rules on you. That there's a uh, a piece of paper somewhere saying that this is the way this thing works, and that there's you know like EU law protects the investment. Now, is it necessary to have one of these tokens to be able to trade on your exchange? No. And we, you know, like, I think that a lot of people have asked, well, does owning the tokens give me discounted fees or any special privileges? And the answer is no. Uh, we obviously could have done it that way, but we think that we think like the set of people that see this as a great investment might not be the set of people that are interested in actively trading crypto and forcing those to be the same set of people might not be reasonable. Um, like there's people that would view this as I have a model. I can predict what I think the exchange's revenues would be. 
And therefore, I want to do this thing because my opinion of the discounted cash flow is that this that these dividends are going to generate is X. Um, those people might not actually be that interested in trading cryptocurrencies. They might just be interested in uh, basically a coupon paying instrument. So what's the incentive for you to offer a token? As opposed to just doing a standard equity raise. So that's the purpose of it. Is it to raise? It's it's purely so, just a different uh, sort of way of raising capital. Yeah, I think that that's just an alternative way of raising capital. So you know the the options for in the crypto space for most people are traditional equity financing, where you go to VCs and private investors and you do private you do private financing, so you do a Series A or Series B, whatever. Um, or you go to the fully other extreme, which is you do an ICO, which is fully unregulated, and you just ask for money and then hope that the SEC doesn't um, take you away in handcuffs. Um, or you do the thing, which is the compliant version of, of a token offering, which is that you say that the tokens actually do map back to shares, that they actually are full securities and governed by securities law, but they still have uh, the ability to be liquidly traded. Um, and so... You know, if you invest in the token as, a, as an investor, if you invest in the token, you know that this thing is going to have liquidity on secondary markets. So you're going to be able to get out of your investment at some point, And there's probably some premium for that liquidity um, as an issuer of doing the fundraising as someone who's trying to raise funds. I see it as I obviously am going to want to buy these tokens back Um because anytime you sell either traditional equity or any any share of your company, you always want to get that back, right? In some way, you could. You do a share buyback. You go back to your investors and you offer to buy them out. Like You always want to take back your company that you had to sell pieces of to raise money to do your company. Um, and so tokens, as a, as, a, as, a, as a person issuing them, is actually also attractive because their liquidity makes them easier to buy back. Um, so that, that, that's kind of the way I, I see the STO space. Okay. And you're not the first to do this, are you? We're not the first. Um, it's actually very, very hard to track like uh, who's the first and who's the whatever because it's like unclear. Like does announcing that you're going to do it mean that you're doing it? <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. I think we're definitely going to be one of the first companies that have done a security token offering in Europe. But we won't be the first. Yeah, okay. So what other, like besides exchanges, has there been any other uh, technologies or projects? I'm not sure what the right terminology here is, but other companies maybe which have offered a token in this way? I mean, I think that to me, this is clearly the future. Like I, I see us kind of rapidly snowballing towards a future where there's millions of these tokens available for trade. Like you'll just, you'll log into your IB or TD Ameritrade account. And instead of there being a few thousand equities, there's going to be millions of tokens. Um, and those tokens are going to be companies like doing uh, the equivalent of equity fundraising, but there's also going to be, you know, like bonds, real estate, art collections, royalty rights, IP, um, and then funds that aggregate all of those various things and slice them up in all kinds of ways. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's the future that excites, you know, us for LXDX. And the other reason why the technology has been built the way it is, is we want to be able to have hundreds of thousands of things available for trade on the exchange at some point. So I think that lots of stuff is going to be tokenized for the benefit of increased liquidity and increased transparency, um, and, and perhaps increased efficiency too. 
So I think that this is the very, very beginning of, of, of this process. Yeah, cool. All right, man. Well, I wish you all the best. If someone wants to find out a bit more about yourself, are you on Twitter? Uh, I am on Twitter. LXDX is on Twitter. I'm on Twitter, but I'm, I'm not super active. Probably the best way to find out more about me is to ping me on LinkedIn. Um, and the best way to learn about LXDX is to check out the website or the Telegram. Okay. And the website is? LXDX.co. Well, that's easy. Um, and do you want to just share your Twitter handle anyway? I know a lot of Chat with Traders listeners are pretty active on Twitter. So uh, I believe our Twitter is at LXDX. Okay. And your personal one? Uh, it is uh, 0xJoshua. Okay. Well, I'll put all that in the show notes as per usual. Josh, thanks a lot for doing this, man. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been great. I appreciate you having me on. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Chat with Traders.